In the last several years, we've been given a heads up each time there's been a solar or lunar eclipse that's forthcoming. We're given the precautions and so forth, especially for the ones where the eclipse is going to be over the sun. But we're also told that it's something we want to witness if we're able to, because it's not going to happen again in our lifetime exactly the way that particular eclipse might be. It might be 50 years before it happens again, or 112, or these astronomical numbers. But while each of those eclipse, these incidences of an eclipse of the sun or of the moon might be slightly different, they all have one thing in common. An eclipse is simply an obstruction, a barrier, between earth and the light emanating from the sun or the moon. At night when the moon is eclipsed, we're left in more or less total darkness. During the day, likewise, if the sun is eclipsed, we find ourselves experiencing, if not total darkness, at least an experience of living in a shadowy experience, much like we'd have if there's full cloud cover over us as a storm coming in. This week someone shared with me a video taken of a family, a widowed father and his three teenage children. They lived in Paradise, California, a place that was being ravaged by the wildfires. And it had become painfully obvious that their home and their business was going to go up in flames. And so the father and the family gathered together what belongings they could, put them in the car, and began driving away, fleeing for their lives and their safety. The video is of them driving in the car, and the only light that you can see are the headlights coming from the car and the light of the fire on either side of them on the road as they're trying to drive to safety. That fire consuming everything in its path. But what's more telling is the audio. The youngest asking, how much longer until we're safe? Are we almost away? How much longer? The voice of the Father. Not much farther. We're almost there. Just a few more minutes. And the voice of their 14-year-old leading the family in prayer, praying to God for safety. Lord, help us get out of here safely. Watch over us, Lord. Get us through this. Now, most of us may have never have experienced what it's like to be in a wildfire or running literally for our lives. I can only imagine, but we all know what it's like to experience a period of darkness in our lives where things just aren't going the way that we plan or the way that we would want them to be. It's almost like circumstances or situations can envelop us. And that's all that we can see is the darkness 
or the failure or the challenge or whatever descriptor we want to place on it. When I watched that video, it became really clear to me that those folks represented different aspects of what we experience as Christians. We're in a dark time in our church. And I've shared with you my frustrations from time to time. Things don't move along quickly enough. This past week when we found out that the bishops were meeting but they weren't going to be able to vote on reforms that needed to take place, that Rome would prefer that they waited until there's a meeting of all the heads of the bishops' conferences in the world to have a unified approach to what can be described in no other word than crisis. As I saw those people in the car, I said, that's like a little version of what it's like to be in the church today, isn't it? Feeling like we're being surrounded by darkness and that things are on fire. Crying out, how much longer? How long till we're safe? Are we going to make it? Hearing the Father's voice representing God. We're almost there. Just keep focused. It's going to be okay. And the voice of many of the faithful crying out to God. God, get us there safely. Give us renewal. Give us reform. And maybe still being a little impatient as we feel enveloped by that darkness. But that video ends as that car drives through, you discover that they weren't leaving in the darkness of night. As they leave the cloud of all that smoke and fire and destruction, you can see brightness to return. The sky is blue, the white clouds in the air, that they're, safe, they're safely out of it, leaving that darkness, leaving that destruction behind knowing that what is ahead of them is to rebuild their lives, to restore what they'd lost. Yeah, I was a little bit irritated when I saw that the bishops weren't going to be able to vote on those reforms. But you know, as I've spoken to people, a lot of folks don't quite understand what those votes were for. They were like, well, we need to do some of these things. I'm like, well, the things people thought the bishops were voting for were things that have already taken place nationally in our church. Someone asked me, they said, well, Father, I need to ask you right now, if you heard, it was reported to you that a child was being abused or that someone had been abused, what do you do? I said, it's really simple. It's cut and dried. It's laid out for me. Number one, the first call is to civil authorities, to the police, or if it's a historic case, to the state's attorney or the attorney general, make the report. My second call 
is to notify the archdiocese, regardless of who that person might be. A member of my staff or someone that I may not even know. If it's reported to me, I report it on immediately. Sometimes people will say, well, Father, I really struggle with giving to the church because it's like I'm fueling this. I'm paying off these, these lawsuits or things along those lines when I put my money into the collection. Not true. When we take up our tithes, our offerings, our collection at Mass, the lion's share of that stays right here at St. John's. Yes, a small portion, about 12% of our offertory helps to fund the operations of the Archdiocese, but not legal proceedings. Those things are handled through insurance, much like a doctor has malpractice insurance. And we have insurance on our buildings. Our staff is bonded, things along those lines. That comes out of a very separate fund. And people sometimes didn't realize that. And I thought, maybe wrong, certainly wrongly, that people understood that. That's why I bring it up today, is because people have asked me that question. But you know, what's, it, what's all this saying to us today? Well, I'll tell you one thing. While I was disappointed at where that bishop's conference meeting was going, I was never more proud to be a priest serving in the Archdiocese of Baltimore than when I read the statement of our own Archbishop, William Laurie, when he stood up in the midst of his brother bishops and said in so many words, I've been to listening sessions and I've listened to the people of my diocese. I've read emails and letters that people have sent in. I've seen the reports of other things happening in parishes and what the people are saying. And he told his brother bishops, our people are tired. They want reform. They want renewal. They want accountability. And they want it yesterday. And it's not an unreasonable request. I could not have been more proud of the man. And if you know Archbishop Lori, he's not one prone to theatrics by any means. But what heartened me even more is when the bishop's meeting was over, he addressed the media. And he said, yeah, the bishops didn't have a vote. But I will tell you this much, in our archdiocese, the bishops will be held to the same standard, the same protocols, the same procedures as any priest, as any employee, as any volunteer. No exceptions. And his hope is that that becomes a template for the national policy, an international policy. Or if something better comes along, they'd embrace that. But he said he's not going to wait for people to get their acts together on a national or international level that renewal and reform starts at home. And my friends, that's exactly where we all have to take ownership to some de degree. This isn't the time to let our doubt or despair or discouragement to become yet another eclipse. 
We cannot allow the light of Christ to be eclipsed in our lives, in our faith, in our church, in our parish, in our community. There is too much at stake. How do, why are we here? Someone asked me that question. I'm sure you've gotten it on occasion. People find out you're a practicing Catholic. Sometimes they roll their eyes. Sometimes these are people within your own family. Some of you may be dreading Thursday when you get together with the members of your family who are discouraged or maybe a little jaded. Why are you still Catholic? Why do you still go there? I'll give you my answer. March 31st, 1982. A very important date in my life. You know what happened on March 31st, 1982? No, I wasn't ordained. I'm not that old. <laughs> and I wasn't born. I'm not that young. On March 31st, 1982 is the day I made my profession in the Catholic Church, was confirmed and received First Holy Communion. You see, up to that day, I didn't have a problem with Jesus. I had a relationship with Christ. It was on that day that I entered into a relationship, not just with Christ, but with his body, the church. And why do I stay as a Catholic, as a priest? You heard it in the letter to the Hebrews today. Because at this altar, in every sacrament, but at this altar in particular, he comes to us, body, blood, soul, divinity. Jesus Christ offered the one sacrifice for all. He died for our sins and he gives himself to us. He gives himself to us. He invites us to receive him, to accept him. He gives himself to fortify us, to strengthen us, to call us out of darkness, to eradicate the eclipse. And just as we receive him or experience his presence in every sacrament in a unique, intimate way, it's here. And that's not something that I can do on my own. I mean, I suppose as a priest I can celebrate Mass on my own, but that's by nature a communal experience, a communal celebration. But when we come forward to receive him, it becomes intimately personal, doesn't it? That what he did, he did for us. That first generation of Christians, when he, they were hearing these things, they were thinking that they would be the only generation. That Christ would come and all of these things were going to happen right there in that span of one generation. Obviously it wasn't so. It seems that that generation that Jesus was talking about was the generation of his church that his church will not pass away until all these things come into fruition. He never said his church would be perfect. He never said it would be spotless in the human sense. But he said that his church would always be an avenue through which his grace would flow. You know, I know people struggle with this, but I'm heartened at the folks who have approached me and have said, I'm stepping up, I'm all in. People who have increased their offertory to try to get us stabilized financially as a parish. But even more so, people who continue to say, I'm here. Because this is where 
I find and I celebrate Christ in the midst of community. My friends, this is a time where we as disciples of Jesus Christ need to be all in to even double down. Because we're like that family in the car. It may appear that things are burning around us and there are some things that need to burn away. That unhealthy sense of clericalism, the way uh, the culture of secrecy that was existing way too long. Let it burn away. But we need to keep moving forward and recognizing that we're not in a terminal state of darkness. But God is calling us to keep moving forward, moving forward into his light. Amen.